Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I want to thank everybody for being here. And let me just echo what Alan said. We want to do our best to support Lexi. Uh, We have, like I said last week, this church has a great history of supporting men and women who feel called to vocational ministry and missions. And we're excited whenever we see that. And we want to make sure they know they have our support financially and and prayer-wise and emotionally. But also remember, all of us are called to ministry. All of us are called to missions. All of us are part of God's plan to bring peace to the chaos in our community, one heart, one family at a time. And so we, we want to give you opportunities. We've been talking about that most of this year. Uh, COVID put a damper on some of that, but uh, we're part of a 10-year process to, to bring 10,000 of these transforming relationships out of our congregation over the next 10 years. And we want to get that started as soon as possible. So Alan told me just before the service started, the, the email has already gone out that will give you an opportunity, if you're a member of a life group here at First Baptist, to give you an opportunity to adopt a teacher over at Sam Houston Elementary. And uh, last week, we introduced that idea, and I got an email from a lady who's in the, in the congregation today who uh, is a teacher on that campus, and she, said, she just said, we, there's just such a need on that campus for affirmation, encouragement, and support. Uh, There are a lot of of great public school campuses across our area. They're all important. Some of them have more resources than others. Some of them get more community support than others. Sam Houston is one of those uh, campuses that just needs more support than it gets. And so for us to be able to come alongside and tell some teachers, you matter, you're important, the mission you're involved in is something we care about too, and we want to partner with you, I think is a powerful opportunity. So be in prayer about what you, your family, maybe your life group can do uh, when you get that email this week or today. So we're in Acts 14 today. We're continuing our story about the life, our series about the life of Paul, a man who changed the world more than any other person aside from Jesus himself, in my opinion. And I want to just start off with this. One of the things about human nature is we like to show off. Even people who would consider themselves introverted and more private, there are certain ways that you want people to know you're doing well. You pay attention to your appearance. Maybe you wear a certain brand of shoes or carry a certain handbag or dress in a certain fashion. Maybe uh, you drive a certain kind of vehicle or maybe uh, you keep yourself fit. There, There are certain ways of making sure people know that you're doing well. And it's interesting when you look down through history at what kinds of things that uh, people down through the, the span of history have considered as status symbols. And uh, let me just give you some examples. In England in the 18th century, to own a pineapple was considered a sign of, of great success and wealth. I am not making this up. Pineapples were considered extremely rare, extremely expensive. And so uh, to, to have a pineapple in your house was sort of like having a, a Ferrari in your garage today. And, and rich people would literally rent pineapples for parties because they wanted everybody to show up and go, wow, you're doing great. Uh, in England also in those days, in another era, it was considered a status symbol to have a hermit living on your manor or on your estate. And so rich lords would actually hire men to pose as hermits. And you can imagine what that might look like if that were a job listing today. Wanted, old, wizened coot to, uh, with long scraggly beard and generally disheveled appearance to lay around on my estate, I will pay you. I think we could probably find a few candidates here in Conroe. Um, now, on a darker note, in China for many centuries, it was considered a, a sign of beauty for women to have very, very small feet. 
And so families would actually, if they had daughters, would bind the feet of their daughters, would actually fold their feet over and bind them together so that their feet would grow in a deformed fashion. It was really cruel, it was awful, but it went on for centuries because it was a sign that you're doing well, that you're beautiful, that a wealthy man will marry you and give you a good life. They had to actually outlaw that practice in China in the early 1900s. And I probably don't need to tell you this, but in many cultures over the years, and even today in some poorer cultures of the world, fat is considered a sign of success and and wealth and health. Uh, not obesity. The obesity has been generally looked down upon through the years in all cultures, but to be plump was considered to be better than to be thin. Uh, and the thinking went that if you had a little extra meat on your bones, that meant that you, you could afford to hire somebody else to do your, your physical labor for you. And you could afford to, to buy more food than you really needed to eat. And isn't it interesting that in our culture, it's the exact opposite. It's those who are thin that are considered those with status. And so if you're wealthy, then you can afford to buy good, nutritious food instead of eating, you know, Burger King all the time. And if you're, if you're wealthy, you can afford to go to this place where you pay money so that you can lift heavy objects and run and walk on treadmills, actually paying money to simulate physical labor. We live in a weird world, don't we? So... So today we want to talk about a very different status symbol, a sign not of physical beauty or success, not of wealth, not of popularity, but a sign of devotion to Christ, a sign that your life is headed in the right direction. In the last, the second to last verse of the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, 17, Paul writes these words, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I've never heard a sermon preached on that verse before. What is he talking about? He's he's writing to the Galatians, the people uh, in in a section of modern-day Turkey today that was called Galatia. He's writing to them because he has gotten word that these newly formed churches are already abandoning the gospel. They're They're not turning away from Jesus. They're not saying Jesus isn't Lord. They're just adding extra layers to the gospel. And anytime you add to the gospel, you've ruined it. The gospel is sufficient as it is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to die on the cross for our sins. Believing in Him, trusting in Him brings salvation. He rose again the third day. Salvation in Him leads to eternal life. That is the gospel. And you don't need anything more than that in order to be saved. And yet these Galatians, because they had gotten some word from people in Jerusalem, we'll talk about this in much more detail next week in Acts 15 when we look at that chapter But these Jerusalem Christians had come down and said, okay, all you Gentile believers in Jesus, you understand that you're not really saved yet, don't you? I mean, yeah, you've got, you got all the right doctrine and you're doing all the right things, but you never became Jews. And you can't just go straight from being a pagan to in the family of God. You've got to go through that process of conversion, which means all your men need to be circumcised. Now, circumcision was commanded in the Old Testament for the Jews, but it was a new day, and God had already shown there was something new. Paul says circumcision is nothing anymore. That doesn't matter. If you want to see a real sign of faith, look at me. Look at the marks of Jesus. So what is he talking about? Well, we'll get into that this morning. Let me give you a little background on chapter 14, and then we'll jump into the story. This is an amazing story, a story that I really love that always inspires me. Uh, So last week we saw... 
how Paul and Barnabas became the first foreign missionaries in human history. Their home church, the church in Antioch, actually called them out and said, okay, you're two of our five pastors and teachers right here in our church, and we're so blessed to have you, but we feel that the Holy Spirit is calling you to go and take the gospel to other places where it's never been heard before. So Paul and Barnabas would go from city to city, and every city they would go to, they'd follow the same routine. They'd go first to the synagogue, and they'd preach to their fellow Jews. And the way it worked was you'd walk in, and they'd say, oh, well, we've got a visiting rabbi. Would you like to speak today? Absolutely, I would. Take the scroll, whatever that day's reading was. Paul was a skilled enough communicator, and he had the Holy Spirit. He could say, okay, here's how that shows us that the coming Savior, Messiah, was Jesus of Nazareth. And eventually, he would have enough people in that synagogue angry at him, they'd ask him to leave, and he would take whatever converts they had made, and they'd go into the marketplace and into the streets, and they'd convert as many Gentiles as possible, and then they'd form a church, they'd spend time building that church and and discipling those members, and when they realized who uh, was gifted by God and called by God for spiritual leadership, they would anoint them as elders or leaders of the church, and then they would move on. They didn't let any moss grow. They moved on quickly. And that's how they ended up in a place called Lystra. Lystra, unlike most of the places Paul and Barnabas preached, was not a major city. It was more of a small town, rural area, and it was isolated up in the mountains. So the people there had their own culture. It was very different. Uh, They did speak Greek, which enabled Paul and Barnabas to share the gospel with them. But their home language, the language of their heart, The language they spoke when they were at home alone was, or with one another and their families, was Lyconian. And Paul and Barnabas didn't speak Lyconian. And that's going to become very important in this story. So let's pick up with verse 8 of chapter 14. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland, garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So interesting fact, there was a legend in that part of Galatia that in some time past, centuries past, Zeus and Hermes, these two Greek gods, had come to that village or to that region in the form of human beings And that no one in the village had offered them hospitality except this one elderly couple who literally gave up their evening meal so these two strangers could eat. And then later that night, the two strangers vanished, but there was a huge rain that flooded every home in that region except for the home of the elderly couple, which magically transformed into a temple made of gold. And so this explains why this extreme reaction from these, from these Lystran people who say, Oh my goodness, the gods are back. We, we've got it. We've got a sacrifice to them. We don't want that to happen to us. What happened to our forefathers? Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. And so they let things kind of get out of hand. Pretty soon it's, it's a near riot. And they have to stop and say, wait, wait a second. I I finally get what you're doing. Don't you understand? We're men. We're not gods. There's only one God. His name's not Zeus. His name's not Hermes. His name is Jesus. And he has put up with your idolatry for long enough. He's reached the end of his limit. Now is the time to turn to him. But look what happens in verse 19. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Notice where these people come from. They come from Antioch and Iconium, which are the two cities that Paul and Barnabas have just gotten through preaching in. That's the part of chapter 14 we just skipped over. But Paul and Barnabas had preached in Antioch and Iconium and had been literally run out of town before they could finish establishing churches there. These people came and tracked them down. By the way, this is not the Antioch that Paul and Barnabas come from. There's a second Antioch in the ancient world, which is confusing. It's in Pisidia. This Antioch is a hundred miles from Lystra. These people have traveled literally four days to get there. So isn't it ironic that Paul has run into a group of people, fellow Jews, who have that same sense of misplaced zeal that he once had. Remember, he had devoted himself to wiping out all faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Now he's met some fellow Jews who feel the exact same way, who will travel four days just to make sure he gets stoned, just to make sure he gets executed. In Israel, stoning was an official method of execution, and there was a manual. You can read it in in the works of the rabbis. There was a way it was to be done. They would literally take you to the top of a high place and push you off, uh, either a, a cliff, like they tried to do with Jesus in Nazareth after he preached in the synagogue there, or off of a high building or a scaffolding. They would push you off, and when you hit the ground, you may be dead, you may not be, but they would finish you off by dropping heavy stones on you from a, from a great height. So you can almost say that was merciful, right? This is not Israel. This is, this is a section of Galatia, and this is not an official uh, sanctioned legal proceeding. This is more like a lynching. So there's nothing merciful about what happens to Paul. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around what it would be like to die this way. Can you imagine how long it would take? How many many rocks you would have to throw? How many times a person would have to be struck? How many times you would be struck in areas that would hurt, that would deeply wound, but not lead to death? But eventually they got the job done, or so they thought. And they dragged him out into the street, outside outside the village, Verse 20 says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now let me tell you something about human nature. Human nature is such that when we experience something harmful, unpleasant, traumatic, we never want to go back to the place we experienced it. If in your dating days there was a place where your boyfriend or girlfriend dumped you, you don't want to go back to that movie theater or that restaurant or or that park, right? It brings back bad memories. When Carrie and I were dating, one night we went out to eat and I had cheese enchiladas. And that night I got the sickest I think I've ever been. And I never went back to that restaurant, ever. I I didn't even like driving past it. I I didn't even eat cheese enchiladas again for, for a number of years. So that's human nature, which makes what Paul does here amazing. Paul somehow recovers. He opens his eyes. His friends step back. He gets to his feet And what does he do? Does he say, let's get out of here before those guys come back? No, he goes back into the city. 
where he just got stoned nearly to death. And you might say, okay, Jeff, but uh, haven't you heard of post, uh, post-concussion syndrome where a person's mind isn't quite right for a while after they have a brain injury? Yes, I have. And, and in case you're thinking that's what happened to Paul, from there they went to another city. They spent weeks, maybe even months, preaching and forming a new church. And then what did they do? What did, what did we just read? They came back to Lystra. And then they went to Antioch. And then they went to Iconium. They went to the place where Paul nearly died. They went to the two places where his bullies lived. And I don't need Luke to tell me what kinds of emotions they were experiencing. Paul and Barnabas were human beings. I am sure I'd be willing to bet money they were terrified. They looked at each other and said, what are we doing here? Why why are we going to these cities? I, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm sure their hands were shaking. Their stomachs were in knots. They couldn't sleep. And yet they did. Why? Because there was unfinished business in those cities. In all three of those cities, they had made converts, but they hadn't formed a church yet. It's like delivering a baby and leaving it on the floor of the hospital. They needed to get back there. They needed to disciple the people who had come to know Jesus and help them form a congregation. That is what they did. And that tells you everything you need to know about Paul and Barnabas. It tells you everything that you need to know about what meant the most to them. And see, a few months later, Paul gets home, back to Antioch, his Antioch, And he hears about trouble in Galatia. He hears about these churches he just planted. And they're starting to veer away from the gospel. And that's why when you read the book of Galatians written around 49 AD, because that's the period of time he wrote it, that's why when you read Galatians, Paul seems like he's in such a bad mood. Because he is. He's angry that this is happening. And he's writing to them and he says, listen, if you're looking for a sign of a true believer, don't look for some cheap sign like circumcision. Look for the marks of Jesus. Any true believer is going to have the marks of Jesus upon them. What is he talking about? He's talking about, remember what I looked like. When I came back through your cities, weeks later after that attack, remember, what I, remember how my appearance had changed? I mean, we don't know what happened, but, but we can imagine. I imagine Paul, his appearance was completely different. I can imagine him saying, remember how my face, my facial features don't line up quite right anymore? My nose is a little lopsided. I've got some missing teeth. Maybe one of my elbows doesn't straighten out. I've got some internal injuries and that causes me some embarrassing private problems that that cause me uh, to, to not be as effective in my ministry. But remember all these things and how I'm different now. I, I walk with a limp. I have headaches. Life is hard. Those are the marks of Jesus. That's how you know I'm a true believer. And you should bear those marks too. Now, some of you are starting to say, okay, you're surely not saying what I think you're saying. You're surely not saying that if I'm a true believer, I'm going to experience persecution. Actually, I am. Actually, I'm not saying that. The Scriptures say that. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people say all manner of evil against you. For such did they do to the prophets before you. John 15, 20, the night before he died, he said to his disciples, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's a promise. It's one of those God's promises you don't see on coffee mugs, right? You don't see it in calligraphy that you can buy at the Christian bookstore. And well, not that those exist anymore, but Amazon and and put on your wall. Here's one first, um, second Timothy three, 10 through 12. This one I love. This one I love for a special reason. Paul is writing to Timothy. Do you know where Timothy was from? I mean, nobody knows this. Timothy is from Lystra. Sound familiar? 
Lystra is where Paul got nearly stoned to death. So very likely Timothy was there the day it happened. Very likely Timothy, a young man, was standing there in that circle of people gathered around Paul, laying there in the dust outside the gates of the city, hoping he was still alive. And Paul writes to him late in Paul's life from prison. He writes and says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. The ones we just talked about. Paul's like, remember you saw this. You know about this. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who live, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, that's a hard thing to read. Now, let's be honest about something that we can be thankful for. Most of us have never, and most of us will never, suffer physically like Paul did for our faith. Most of us have never and probably will never never be arrested, be beaten by a mob because of our faith. We'll never be the subject of an honor killing because we converted from another religion to Christianity. We won't be sent to a re-education camp like we would if we lived in North Korea. We won't be publicly lashed like we would if we lived in Afghanistan. We won't be arrested and tortured like we would if we lived in Iran today. We won't be having to meet in a different house every single Sunday because we know the government is trying to catch us and arrest us all like we would if we lived in China. Hallelujah for, for the extraordinary, undeserved privilege we have to live in a country that has religious freedom. But that doesn't mean God's promises are any less true. And there may be some of us who feel called to a place or to a situation where we do suffer physically for our faith. And in the meantime, all of us, all of us, if we serve Christ with our whole hearts, will suffer in some way for our faith. I'm not talking about random suffering that happens to everybody. I'm talking about things that happen specifically because you choose to follow Jesus with all your heart. Emotional wounds are just as real as physical wounds. And when you are falsely accused of things, when you are ridiculed, when you are slandered, when you are gossiped about, as they did Jesus when they called Him a traitor to His people, when they called Him a demon in human form, when they called Him a drunk or a glutton or a friend of sinners, they will do that to you. When you are ostracized or alienated, when, when you on your high school or junior high campus are looked down upon because you won't do what everyone else does, guys, you got to understand when you're a teenager, you can't be one of the cool kids and follow Jesus. It just, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't end when you graduate high school. There will be those times when you realize everyone in your office is in on the same joke except you. They've left you out. Everyone in your office went out and had a good time that last Friday night, but they didn't invite you to come because, as they say, you wouldn't have enjoyed it anyway. And then there's the criticism. Then there's the comments that that stick in you like a knife and you can't quite get over. And one of the really, really disheartening things is that most of that criticism comes not from unbelievers, but from believers, from within your church, sometimes from within your own family. 
There's a young man I know in this community, not a member of our church, who's, who's recently started great efforts to bring awareness and help to an underrepresented group in our community. And he's working hard and he's doing good things. And he came and he sat down with me about a month ago and he said, I don't understand. I, all of a sudden I've got all, I'm trying to do good. And all of a sudden I've got all these people who are criticizing me, all these people who are saying uh, that what I'm doing is wrong or you shouldn't do it that way. And he said, what am I supposed to do? And I said, don't quit. Don't you realize the only reason they're criticizing you is because you are doing good. The only way to avoid being criticized is to do nothing. And that's not God's call in your life. And you might say, well, Jeff, I'm not experiencing any of that stuff. I'm getting along pretty well. We need to ask ourselves, because that's been my, uh, that's been my experience oftentimes in my life, why is it that the devil doesn't consider me enough of a threat that he wants to persecute me? Why is that? Is it because I'm playing it safe and I'm living a very safe and comfortable Christian life where I don't really take any risks and I don't step out on faith? Is it because my true God is, is approval? That's been true of me at times in my life. Where I, It's more important for me to make everybody happy and make everybody like me than it is to please Jesus. Is that why I'm not suffering persecution? Or is it because I, I've, I've gotten myself segmented into this nice, comfortable little bubble where I'm only around people who think just like I do? I'm never around people who don't believe in Jesus or who vote differently or who have different lifestyles. And therefore, I'll never get criticized. I'll never get punished and persecuted because I've, I've built a nice little walled, uh, gated community around my life. Either way, it's not the way we were supposed to live. So what do we do? Do you have the courage enough to say to God, Lord, help me to live a life that is an active threat to the devil? Help me to live a life that is so sold out to you, so effective for your kingdom, that he wants to stop me. And then give me the grace to respond correctly. Do you have the, do you have the courage to pray that kind of prayer? So what is the grace? What is the way to respond effectively? Well, you're not going to like this part. That's assuming you liked the part before. First thing, when you get criticized, the Bible is very clear on this. When you are criticized, the first question should be, are they right? Proverbs 15.31, just one of many examples. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So when you hear negative comments, when you hear hurtful statements, you can, you can say, okay, anybody who criticizes me is persecuting me, and then you're a narcissist. And we got plenty of those in our world today. Or you can tread the path of wisdom that says, okay, Lord, I don't like hearing that. Is it true? Is it accurate? Because sometimes it is. Sometimes, sometimes the harshest things that can be said to you are actually, they're actually an act of love by people who love you, who are trying to steer you back on the right path. But if that's not the case, many times it's not. If the wounds that, you're inf- that are being inflicted on you are wounds of hate, what do we do? Well, it doesn't get any easier here, does it? Matthew 5.44, Jesus said very clearly, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's one of those commands. I don't know how often Christians actually obey that. I, I don't, I'm not asking for any outward sign, but when's the last time you literally prayed for someone who hated your guts? Literally prayed for someone who had hurt you in some way? Literally prayed for someone who made your stomach churn whenever you saw them? Because if we're Christians, we should be doing that. 
And that's something we can do. That, that's something you can do even when you're, when, when you're feeling pain, even when you're hurting, you can pray for that person. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.25 to his young, timid friend, Timothy, and he says that a godly man corrects his opponents with gentleness, that God may grant, perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 3.15-16, agrees. He says, treat them with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Think about what Peter just wrote. And it agrees with what Paul said, but he says, those who slander you. See, they're treating you with the opposite of gentleness and respect. And the world says, when people do that, here's what you do. You nuke them. You destroy them. You make the first one you make an example of, and then everybody else leaves you alone. And that's how some of us operate. But Scripture says the opposite. Treat them with gentleness and respect that they do not deserve. Because you received grace you do not deserve. And your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is not to destroy your opponents. Your goal is to put them into a place of crisis where they don't understand what's going on. No one's ever reacted to me this way before. What is wrong with me that I would be so hateful to someone so kind, so loving, so gentle, so wise? That, they may, that it may lead them to repentance. That's our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is their repentance. So why should we do that? Because that's, quite frankly, not the easy way. And it's not, well, let's just be honest. A lot of things about the Christian faith make sense to us logically. We can understand, once we study the Scriptures and we really think it through, we can understand how following the commands of God make our lives better. It saves you from making terrible decisions. It saves you from untold pain. Accepting Jesus as your Savior and you get forgiveness and eternal life, well, who wouldn't make that deal? Lots of things about the Christian faith seem to pay off. But this is one of those things that doesn't seem to pay off at all. This is one of those things that you say, why why should I do this? And quite frankly, I bet there are some of you sitting here right now saying, yeah, Jeff, that's fine, but I'll just, I'll just settle for being a JV Christian and I'll let the varsity Christians love their enemies. I'll be the JV guy who doesn't get persecuted because he never gets off the bench. That's not an option. Let me tell you why. Why do you think Paul referred to his wounds as the marks of Jesus? It's because, remember the first Easter Sunday? Remember the first time the 12 disciples, or at this point 11, saw Jesus again for the first time risen from the dead? He came into that upper room. The door was locked, but suddenly he was there, which had to freak them out. And what did he say to them? He said, see these holes? You can put your finger in them. Come, I want you to see that I'm real. Put your, put your finger in these holes in my feet. He lifted up his tunic. He said, see this, this big wound in my side? This is where the where the spear injured me. It's just a couple of days ago. It's still fresh. Why was he doing that? Because he wanted them to know, number one, this is really me. But number two, this is what counts. This is what matters. This is why you're saved. This is what you mean to me. Scripture tells us that someday we'll experience our own resurrection. That when we die, we're immediately with the Lord, but our bodies are in the ground, but someday they won't be. Someday we will inhabit spiritual, imperishable, glorious bodies. And I don't know what my 
my resurrected body will look like. I just know that Scripture indicates that it will be perfect. And this one right here is not. In fact, I think there's only going to be one imperfect body on the new earth. And ironically, it will be the body of Jesus Himself. Because we've already seen His resurrected body. And it has wounds. It has scars. And every time we run into Him on the new earth, and that's going to be, I hope, very often, every time we run into Him, I think that's where our eyes will be drawn. We'll want to see those wounds once again. We'll want to see them and rejoice all over again.